This is Physician to Physician Plant-Based Nutrition. I'm Tracy Cushing, an emergency medicine physician. I'm also a mom, a wife, four-time Ironman, and I've been plant-based for 11 years. And I'm Eden English. I'm an internal medicine physician, a hiker, a ski boarder, a mom, and I've been vegan for the last five years. We're passionate about helping other doctors learn the science behind plant-based eating so they can help their patients develop sustainable, healthy eating habits. Each episode, we're breaking down the science behind plant-based eating and answering the questions we know most doctors have and most patients ask. Welcome back for part two of Brain Health and Nutrition with our guest, Dr. Ali Saad. So our, our third disease is Parkinson's. Briefly, the pathophys for Parkinson's is it's a neurodegenerative disease uh, of the substantia nigra, which is a structure in your upper brainstem, and it'll produce uh, dopamine. And as the disease progresses, you produce less dopamine, you eventually deplete your dopamine uh, production, and then that leads to the cardinal signs of Parkinson's, which are uh, slow movements and being stiff. Uh, you know, a lot of people will talk about the pill rolling tremor, but that's not always present early on. People will eventually develop that tremor as the disease progresses, but really slowness and stiffness are the hallmarks of Parkinson's. Um, and my takeaway for Parkinson's and diet is, you know, surprisingly, our current allopathic best practice guidelines and manufacturer labeling for drugs that are standard of care for Parkinson's, like Cinemet, indirectly support a whole food plant-based diet without even knowing it. When you look at the manufacturer labeling for Cinemet, um, what they recommend is eating the recommended amount of protein, so not a high-protein diet. And the recommended amount of protein for most you know, healthy adults is 0.8 grams per kilo. And the reason for that is that the levodopa, which is one of the components of Cinemet, competes for absorption with other amino acids. And so that's why you don't want to have a ton of protein in your diet. Not that you should be protein deficient, just eat the recommended amount. Uh, don't overconsume protein but also distribute your protein intake uh, throughout the day. So it's divided among your meals. You don't have like one big high protein meal. And if you do have a high protein meal, it should be your dinner because you're gonna go to sleep uh, soon afterwards. And then you don't really need your cinnamon to work while you're asleep and you know prevent your slowness and stiffness. So that would be the time to have your highest protein meal if you choose to not divide them equally. Um, and what the manufacturer defines as a high protein diet is more than two grams per kilo uh, of protein, which you know is above the recommended dietary intake for most healthy adults. But it's it's also what a lot of Americans will actually eat. They'll eat two grams per kilo or more of protein a day. So I thought that was very interesting. That's really interesting. I love it. I've had a lot of talks with a lot of people about high protein diets and how while they're popular in the weightlifting or fitness industry, they there's no support in the literature that a high protein diet does anything but badness for your physical self. I mean, for your brain, for your kidneys, particularly, it's dangerous to be on a high protein diet. So we just need to be a little bit more cautious with, it's not physicians, it's more the fitness industry saying get as much protein as you can, because that's really what you need to succeed. And I know Tracy and I have talked about this a lot. She's not a super high protein intake for her Ironman workouts. But a lot of my patients seem to equate working out with the need to eat a ton more protein. And they're at much closer to that two grams per kilogram per day than the 0.8 that's actually the recommendation. You know, aside from the protein intake, another recommendation that's, you know, we'll make to our Parkinson's patients is you want to also avoid 
high fat or high calorie meals because they'll delay gastric emptying. And so that of course is also going to delay your med absorption. Um, and it's also going to worsen constipation, which is an issue with Parkinson's people with Parkinson's anyway. Um, and so we'll also recommend a high fiber diet. We'll recommend, uh, staying hydrated to avoid that constipation as we would with anybody. And when you're looking at toxins, this is important in Parkinson's because there's a clear association between, uh, mercury and risk of Parkinson's as well as pesticides and risk of Parkinson's. So you definitely want to avoid those to reduce your risk of developing it. So when you're talking about the ideal Parkinson's diet, what are the components we're talking about? We're saying caloric distribution of macronutrients would be low fat, normal recommended amount of protein, high fiber, avoiding pesticides and mercury, which bioaccumulate the most in animal products as opposed to plants. And so what are you left with? You're left with a, uh, most of your calories coming from complex carbs and basically the principles of a whole food plant-based diet without even telling your patients to specifically follow that. You're you are indirectly encouraging it so that their meds work uh, the way they're supposed to and so that they're not suffering from the um, the complications of Parkinson's like constipation. Is there a link between environmental toxins and Parkinson's development? In terms of Parkinson's and environmental risk, there's a two to five times higher risk of Parkinson's in industrialized countries, even when you control for race. And so, and we know that when you look at pesticides and mercury, those things are associated with um, with the developing Parkinson's. So even though we don't wow. really know the cause of Parkinson's, because we don't, honestly, it can be caused by a lot of things. Um, and you can even get Parkinsonism, which isn't Parkinson's disease as a complication of a lot of things. But we do know that there is a correlation between these um, these environmental exposures and developing it. Wow, thanks. I had I had no idea there was epidemiology like that. That's fascinating and scary. <laughs> Yeah, there aren't really interventional things for Parkinson's when it comes to diet, unlike stroke and dementia, just because it's not as prevalent. Uh, but there is correlation data. Um, you know, I found one meta-analysis of the Mediterranean diet, uh, looking at 12 studies, and they found a lower incidence of both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's at a hazard ratio of 0.87. Uh, so, but, and, but it wasn't a Parkinson-specific study. They just kind of lumped, lumped it together with Alzheimer's. And then there was a cross-sectional study that detected an age difference of Parkinson's onset of up to 17 years. Um, among the highest adherence to the MIND diet, the you know the Mediterranean slash, di uh, slash uh, dash diet, and when you look at dairy and animal fat, there's you know there's some correlation studies, but it's not clear that it's the dairy itself that causes it or the pesticides that bioaccumulate in the dairy. So you know I don't tell people to avoid dairy specifically for their Parkinson's. I don't feel like there's a strong enough argument for that. I just tell them you know more plant forward and avoiding dairy for their overall health. Uh, for you know, you know, going back to the concept I talked about initially, just having that good baseline uh, uh, brain health, so that you're not as susceptible uh, to uh, the effects of Parkinson's. And then an interesting thing about lifestyle that's like diet adjacent is the effects of caffeine and smoking. So we know that people who take in a lot of caffeine and smoke, there is a decreased risk of developing Parkinson's. We don't know how exactly that happens, but of course, we don't certainly recommend people you know have ten cups of coffee a day and start smoking. Um, and there was hopefully it's one, the caffeine, <laughs> hopefully it's the caffeine, but it's actually, it's each, each of them separately. It's not just lumping them together. The smoking, there seems to be a correlation for some reason. There was one study where they tried giving people caffeine for, to treat their Parkinson's and similar to introducing caffeine to a caffeine naive person, they kind of speed up the first couple of days, but then they kind of get used to the caffeine and then it's just not really 
um, doing much. So it's it's not really an intervention for Parkinson's. So my takeaway for Parkinson's is there's correlation data showing a decreased risk of whole food plant-based diet, as well as uh, avoiding mercury and pesticides. Even though there aren't interventional trials for it, the whole food plant-based diet will make your Parkinson's drugs work more effectively. And you'll also reduce the need for needing as much drug. And so you therefore reduce the risk of side effects, which is uh, high in a lot of these Parkinson's drugs. That's why I'll almost never start them on people when they're acutely ill and admitted to the hospital. We'll kind of start it in clinic after they've uh, they've uh, settled down. I can honestly say I've never seen a patient with Parkinson's, even someone who was there for complaints related to their meds, who said, my doctor told me I should or should not take these with certain foods, eat them at a certain time of day, any of that. And I've seen plenty of people with side effects from their Parkinson's meds, which is just sure. really fascinating. It's it's something we we counsel people about in clinic when we start them on these drugs. You know, the whole thing about the how much protein you should be taking in, it's pretty common, I would say. But yeah, a lot of people don't know about it. And it's certainly not standard of care. I remember in my residency, we didn't learn about it. I kind of learned about learned about it when I was uh, rotating with a movement disorders attending and then just speaking with other movement uh, doctors over the years. So yeah, I left uh, multiple sclerosis for last just because I think we don't, we have the least amount of data uh, for it. So briefly, the pathophys review for MS is it's an autoimmune demyelination of neurons. And the theory as to why people get MS changes every few years right now the leading theory is that it's an autoimmune response after infection with EVV virus, um, and which is very common. And it's not totally proven, but that's the leading theory right now. And we still don't really know the exact cause for MS. Um, and my takeaway for MS is that the best thing you can do is really just have good baseline brain health and avoiding developing comorbid stroke and dementia. And, you know, so that you maintain that baseline brain health, but then also you want to avoid these risk factors for stroke and dementia, you know, basically metabolic syndrome, diabetes, so that you don't develop neuropathy and joint pains, which are going to exacerbate a lot of the uh, side effects and complications of developing MS, because you're going to get spasticity from, uh, you know, advanced and uh, aggressive MS, and you're going to get neuropathy. So you don't want those parts of your body to be damaged uh, as it is. So, you know, when talking some of my MS colleagues actually got a lot of data about MS, but it just wasn't very robust. And I wonder if there isn't a lot of appetite for dietary interventions in MS because we've had these disease-modifying drugs come out in the last 10 years that have become a lot more effective than some of the more traditional uh, injection uh, drugs that we've had. I wonder if that's what it is. But the studies I found have been really small. Most of them have been under 100 patients. The effects of diet were largely measured by disability scores, which are important, but we also care about a biomarker like how many new MS plaques do people develop on their follow-up MRIs, and there just there isn't a lot of that when it comes to diets. So we're lacking these objective biomarkers, unfortunately. But it's it's important because this is the way that we'll say, yeah, you're getting worse and your disability scores worse because we can see new MS plaques, and it's not that you've had your MS for a long time or you've developed other medical problems, and now those are manifesting and leading to your worsened disability scores. But when I was speaking to um, some some of my MS uh, colleagues, I spoke to about five MS doctors and just told them, hey, what do you guys recommend in terms of diet for your patients with MS? And the consistent response I got was, eating healthy is important, but in terms of what that healthy diet is was very inconsistent. I had some people tell me they recommend a Mediterranean diet. I had some people tell me that they avoid gluten and dairy. And I said, well, you know, is there any data for gluten or dairy? And 
it's, you know, the response I got was mostly that they believed gluten was inflammatory. Aside, unless someone has celiac, I don't specifically tell them to avoid gluten. And that was kind of the same reasoning for dairy. So I think there isn't a lot of data and that's reflected in how people counsel their MS patients, but at least, at least they're telling them to eat healthy. It's just, we, we don't really have a good sense of what that, that healthy is. Um, but with regard to dairy, I did found this uh, interesting pathophys. So there's a protein in milk called buterophyllin. Uh, it's associated with the antigenic mimicry against the oligodendrocytes in myelin. And so there's a weak and inconsistent correlation between dairy and MS. And I think the reason people started studying dairy is because uh, of the whole vitamin D thing with MS. So we know that when people live at higher latitudes, they have a higher risk of MS. So you'll see it in higher prevalence in white people. There's a proposed uh, mechanism between MS and vitamin D being related, but it's, you know, the vitamin D is really just correlational. We do know that people uh, with low vitamin D have a, low, have a higher risk of MS, but trials where they've supplemented people with vitamin D have been found to be ineffective. They've not been found to disease, be disease modifying at all. It's, it's a correlation and it's not necessarily the vitamin D itself per se. So we still recommend people get vitamin D when they have a mouth. We'll put them on vitamin D supplementation, but even though it doesn't seem to help just because it's good to have a normal vitamin D for, for other reasons. But, you know, some, some nutrition researchers have proposed that, you know, is it really living at higher latitudes and getting less UV light that's the problem? Or is it have, living at higher latitudes and having a more Western diet, which is more animal-based and more saturated fat-based that is uh, the actual mechanism. And that remains to be seen. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a lot more that folks at those latitudes have in common than just their sunlight exposure that are right. known to be risk factors for diseases, right? So short of rickets, like, I mean, are there fewer, or I guess to the dairy point, is there any evidence in cultures where dairy is much less consumed, for example, like in Japan or in Africa? And I guess those are lad. I guess those are latitudinal uh, differences as well. So probably not able to make a correlation, but just curious if there's less MS in societies where there's also known to be less dairy, um, at least cow dairy intake. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, we, we do know that, you know, pretty much any race other than white will have a lower risk of MS in general, but when they do get MS, it tends to be worse. They tend to have a worse clinical course. And for some and for some reason, men tend to have a worse clinical course than women. Um, so it's more common in, in, in white people, more common in women, but they tend to have the milder form compared to um, to other populations. But I'm not really aware of data where they'll take a certain race or ethnicity and then they'll expose them to a Western diet or lifestyle and see if that's kind of increases their their risk of MS. But I do know that there's data where they will look at rural populations in other countries like China, for example, and they'll find that they'll have a lower risk of MS compared to the same population in urban environments. And I'm sure, again, other environmental factors, right? Pesticides and what's in our water and who knows, there could be some underlying commonality. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Saad. I would say what's your, uh, if, if a neurologist is going to listen to this and they're going to fast forward to the end and get your take home uh, points in a minute or less or so, what would you say you would really want a neurologist to learn from this? Three things. Number one, regardless of what your subspecialty is in neurology, if you're doing some clinic or hospital work, you're going to see a lot of stroke and dementia. And so those diseases uh, are heavily influenced by diet and lifestyle. 
Again, 90% uh, lifestyle risk for stroke, anywhere from 20 to 40% lifestyle risk for dementia, depending on the population you're looking at. So we really do want to be counseling people on dietary intervention as lifestyle interventions. Number two is I think we need to reframe the research we're doing and reframe the way we're presenting data to patients. And to, you know, to the point that Eden made earlier about we need to tell people, hey, eat more whole foods, eat more real foods, rather than vilifying the foods that are bad for us. Because for the most part, patients know that these foods are bad for them. And that negative framing just as it makes, sets you up for a really steep uphill battle with patients. Um, so people I found have been much more receptive to, you know, hey, this food is good for you. Eat more of it. And so the ultra-processed stuff and the animal products are going to naturally get crowded down to a smaller portion of their plate as a result. And from a personal and planetary health perspective, you know, just having it be significantly reduced is good enough for making you a lot healthier, progress over perfection. And then the third point is, I think we have to reconsider what we're considering good level of evidence when it comes to diet, because we're never going to have class one level A evidence for nutrition studies to get it into, you know, AHA guidelines or, you know, oncological guidelines or what have you. And, you know, having high level evidence is important from a policy perspective to justify the costs and having high level evidence from a medical perspective has traditionally been important because usually with conventional medicine, we're prescribing medicines and we're prescribing procedures or surgeries. And those things tend to have side effects and risks. But when you're talking about dietary interventions, what are the cost side effects or risks? that we're really weighing against the benefits, right? So at worst, these dietary interventions are going to do nothing for you. And so why do we need to have class one level A evidence when we're making these recommendations? So when you look at, you know, the HA recommendations, or you look at articles on up to date and what the, their little summary section, they usually don't include diet in there because it's not in their bucket of what's considered high level evidence, but it's still important to present that data. And if you want to say this is level C, this is level BR, whatever it is, that's fine because you've got to start somewhere. And, you know, looking back at the older stroke guidelines, for example, you know, they said, don't smoke. The level of evidence is low. It's level C based on expert opinion because we don't have a lot of data at this time. But it's still important to state that, right? Because if you're not making a point as a physician or uh, a committee that's putting together these guideline recommendations, you're not making a point to put diet on there, you're indirectly saying it's not that important. We're not going to address it with our patients. And so you're not setting up policy makers to address it. You're not setting up hospitals to have to meet uh, metrics around it. I think that's such a great point. We talked about that a lot in our early episodes about dietary research and how it's not great, but we do the best we can with what we have and, and present it as such. But I, I agree with you. The time to not act because it's not robust is gone. We have enough at least supportive data. And again, as you said, can do very little harm with most of these interventions, if any. And so there is no reason not to not to try. The quality of evidence is not an excuse. And I absolutely agree. It, it is tough. And we've talked about it a lot, Tracy. It's tough to get that quality of evidence, evidence for diet because you can't double blind a diet study. People know what they're eating. Um, and then there's all sorts of other issues that make it really hard to get that class A data. But we have we have a lot of data out there and there's more coming. And to Ali's point, it's cheap and it doesn't hurt. So plant-based diet, like there's not, there's very little negative evidence and it's very small and specific subsections of the population. Mostly these diets either help or it's neutral when we do look at data and it's cheap and it's easy and it doesn't have all the risks that the DMARDs have or any other medication has a higher risk than just suggesting somebody eat more whole foods and less animal products. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Saad. We loved having you here and we look forward to circling back and finding out how all of your initiatives and fellowships are going. Thank you so much. Uh, it was great uh, speaking with both of you. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I'm going to share this with uh, my neurology colleagues when it comes out. This is Tracy and Eden signing off. Less meat means less disease. Go have a happy plant-based day. <laughs>